If you would take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 26. Be in Matthew chapter 26 today. Over the last month, we have been working through questions of Jesus. Questions that Jesus asked. And there's, there's just a lot of questions that Jesus asked as you go through the Gospels. We just focused on a very few in the book of Matthew. Um, so today, we're actually kind of doing a transition sermon series. We're ending our series on Jesus' questions, and we're beginning a new series on prayer. Um, I thought it would be appropriate to bring in a question um, of Jesus on the topic of prayer as we transition into that. And we're going to be looking in the next month on prayer as we sort of ramp up a series this fall in our Connect Groups. We're going to be doing a book together in our Connect Groups called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. And it's a very practical, very practical uh, book that just walks you through elements of prayer and um, just some, some really good methods and, and focuses. Um, I think one of the greatest testimonies of the book I heard was one time in Presbytery and a, a man stood up as a personal privilege. He was a professor at the seminary, at Redeemer Seminary, where Chuck went. And you know how those academic types are. And he stood up and he says, you know, this is a great book. You know how I know that? Because I'm praying more. And I just that's a great testimony of that particular book. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. Over the next couple weeks, if not already, your Connect Group leaders, if you were in a Connect Group last uh, winter, will be con connecting with you to talk about that. And, and, you know, because of this particular COVID situation we're in, there's just going to be, we're going to have to be flexible in our groups. We're going to have to be flexible with one another. Some people may only want to Zoom, and that's great. Some people may want to gather in groups, kind of following the guidelines that we've, we've established here. And so we're, we're going to be trying to work through that. So what I would ask is just have grace upon one another and mercy. And uh, we'll try to work through this the best we can. But I really feel like that as a church, we need, to, we need that connection back together. Um, you know, we don't know whether this is going to continue on for six months to eight to nine months. We don't know. Um, people say a lot of things. I, I read the experts every day. They're all over the place. You may tell you who knows what's going to happen. Only the Lord. Only the Lord knows. And so that doesn't mean that we can't learn something. It doesn't mean that people, someone out there has the right process and what's going to happen with this. We just don't know. And so let's be graceful and loving and kind as we try to work through these things. But let's try to get back together with some sort of connection because I feel like we need it. We need it desperately. So let's turn in our passage today as we come to this question from, from Jesus, Matthew 26, 40. So if you'll look in your text, Matthew 26, 40. And he, Jesus came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your mercy and grace. I just ask that you would help us to understand this, this passage as we kind of expand backwards a little bit and look at the context. 
And as we consider the, the, the meat of this passage and, and um, why would the disciples not pray, Lord, we'll look at why we struggle with prayer too. And then we'll, we'll hear the gospel because we need it. So let us have ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Is it just me or is prayer hard? You know, uh, I talk to people um, a lot about prayer, and this is one of the areas that they say is difficult. We often wake up in the morning and we say to ourselves, today, I want to be in prayer. I'm going to jump right in, uh, be in conversation with God, perhaps this morning, and even throughout the day, I'm just going to pray to God. And we find that it's one thing to say that and to desire that, but it's another thing to do it. Maybe some of these thoughts come to your mind concerning prayer. It's kind of like just talking to myself. I feel like I'm just talking to myself. Is anybody listening? I get so distracted. You know, I'm focused, I'm praying, and in the next minute I'm thinking about this project that I have to do at work, or I'm thinking about one of my kids. I really don't know what to say when I'm praying. Am I saying the right things? What am I, you know, am I, am I not? What, what, what am I doing here? Uh, there's so much to do. I just don't know that I have time to pray today. I've got to get going. And again, I think we come back to that idea. Is he really listening? You know, the list could go on and on and on and on here. Is it just me? Or is prayer hard? Prayer is difficult, and today we're going to look at the disciples in a most sobering situation where Jesus reprimands them, at least three of them, three of the disciples that were with him there. And, and we're going to look at this, and we're going to wrestle through this particular situation, and, and then we're going to, as I prayed before, consider some of the key reasons why prayer is so difficult for us. We're going to look at why prayer is difficult for them, and we're going to think about why prayer is difficult for us. And so let's look at our first point, which is why Jesus' disciples didn't pray. What was going on here? In order to fully understand it, we've got to jump back in the text a little bit. Perhaps you recognized in the context of this being asked that this was the night when Jesus was betrayed. This is the night when he was handed over to the Romans. And, and um, on that evening, Jesus and his disciples entered into a room. It was called the upper room where they... Um, gathered together for Passover, and Jesus, if you remember, washed the disciples' feet. And it was a very strong teaching moment. Jesus, I'm sorry, Judas then um, departed from the room to go and to betray Jesus. Uh, the disciples all took the Lord's Supper together that evening, and then he taught them, as John records in his gospel and in John 13 and following, he taught them some pretty heavy things. Jesus instructed them on their new relationships, their new responsibilities, and the resources that they were given. Um, and this was, that was all to kind of prepare them for the shock that they were getting ready to face in His crucifixion, in His resurrection, in His ascension, as well as the shock of serving Him in a very hostile world. His instruction was comforting. It was encouraging. It was filled with promises of hope in the midst of what was to come. 
And so look back in your Bible to verse 30. We're going to walk through this text. I'm going to basically read it and kind of comment on a couple things and then bring it to a head as we go through it. But look at verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out of the Mount of Olives. Um, I always think this is interesting. They sung a hymn together. And then they went out. And, and you can imagine the walk through the streets of the city in the stillness of the night. Uh, the soft light of the Paschal moon reflecting across the Kidron Valley as they went up onto the Mount of Olives. And then in verse 31, then Jesus said to them, You will fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after... I am raised up. So notice that hope there. But after I am raised up, I will go before you in Galilee. He throws in that hope there. It's just, I mean, you're going to walk away from me. You're going to deny me. But hope's coming. Hope's coming. Peter answered him though. Look at verse 33. Peter answered him. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing, chiming in with Peter. There's so much here we could discuss, but but I want you to note Jesus' words. You will all fall away because of me this night. So from a divine perspective here, This was the way it was to providentially be. From this human perspective, Jesus would be alone in enduring all these sufferings. He was going to be alone. They were going to walk away from Him, flee from the situation. Picking up at verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. You know, I imagine that this was a very quiet place, a very serene place, a soothing place of isolation. And, and it, it appears from uh, John in chapter 18 that they had met here often. So we wonder, you know, scholars wonder if this was owned by someone who was a follower of Jesus and he allowed them to go to this place and to meet there. And they would go there and it's, it's a, you know, you can imagine it's a place, think of it, it's, a, it's one of those wonderful places where they would pray together, they would, um, you know, he would teach them there, they would rest and maybe even sleep. And so as, as they get there, he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Je- Zebedee, Uh, He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. As we read these words, notice in verse 37, what is going on inside of Jesus? We get a glimpse of of what's going on inside his heart, inside his mind here. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Anguish filled his soul. All the waves and billows of distress came pouring over him. What troubled him? What was it? Was it that Judas was now 
soon approaching in order to deliver him from the Romans, deliver him to the Romans and his enemies? Uh, Was it the awareness that he would be all alone? That Peter would deny him and the others would scurry off into the darkness? That the Sanhedrin would condemn him or that Pilate would sentence him? That the soldiers would beat him? His enemies mock and ridicule him as he would be nailed to and hang on a cross. Was this what deeply distressed Jesus? Or was there something else in that bitter cup that he asked the Father to be passed from him? What was it? I happen to agree with many, many other scholars that it's ludicrous to think uh, that Jesus agonized over many of the things I just mentioned. This is exactly what was going to happen and He knew it. And Jesus was not a coward. As a matter of fact, if you look in the Scriptures and you look at church history, many martyrs of the faith faced cruel death and taunts with heroic courage. And even great joy in terms of suffering for Jesus. No, Jesus was not cowardly when it came to the physical pain and the mockery and the rejection and the mental distress that he would face. So the question then is, is what was in the cup? What was in that cup? It was the spiritual agony of bearing the sins of the whole world. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine? One of these... um, kind of uh, sci-fi story things that you, you can, you know, movies and things. You see this stuff all through sci-fi. I was telling Chris the other night, one of the things I love about sci-fi is there's a, sometimes there's a lot more deeper issues that they're really pointing to. And uh, one of the movie series I've watched, uh, you know, the main character has these abilities to, to read everyone's mind in the world. And, and when he first is developing these powers, he can't take it because of the pain and the suffering that people go through. Can you imagine being able to take on the sins of the world? Having to endure the divine judgment which those sins deserve. John Stott notes that the Old Testament usage of the Lord's cup was a symbol of His wrath given to the wicked. Jesus was to become identified with sinners as to bear their judgment. And from this, Jesus recoiled. His sinless soul Recoiled. Just think of it. Yet, praise be to God. Jesus emerged from that garden. Confident. Resolute. And for us, He went to the cross. And He, think of the words again that He utters on that cross. Words we can, can't truly understand. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father pouring out His wrath upon His Son. 
with this setting, with this setting, this situation in mind, how could the disciples not stay awake and not watch with Jesus for one hour? Even though they were denying it, He was still telling them, this is coming. This is going to happen. I must go to the cross. Come on, Jesus. Really? You're the Son of God. You're the Messiah. Really? The essence of the word wake that Jesus uses here points to the depth of what Jesus is asking His disciples. Every word strikes home. Stay awake and be spiritually vigilant with Me. Huge forces are afoot tonight. You need to be awake, spiritually alert, and praying. Why weren't they? If you really want to be honest, and I think we all should, we would have probably been found asleep as well. We like to think, oh, I'd be there, Jesus. Just like Peter would say, I'd be there. I'd be praying, Jesus. I'd be praying for you. I'd be praying for me. that I wouldn't fall into temptation, but... Probably not. I mean, think of it. It was possibly the past midnight. Um, the great fatigue of the day had set in, especially for us older people. We'd be like nodding off like crazy. Uh, they had been up early preparing for the Passover. And, and, and then they had come together and had eaten a very full, plentiful meal together. And then you sit and listen to Jesus' teaching and it's, it's emotional, it's weighty, it's heavy. And then the betrayer, this Judas leaving, and the continual talk of death and cross. Luke points out in 22.45 that one of the reasons why they slept was because of their sorrow. There we get behind the scenes the view. What Christ had said to them of his, sor- of his soul troubles. Um, what they had saw in him it filled their hearts with sorrow. And so the disciples had fallen asleep, it seems, from Luke. From the mental and emotional exhaustion resulting from that distress. And also probably from the full day that they had had in the heavy meal. And all those things. But Jesus says to them plainly, watch and pray, and you will not enter into temptation. The Spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And so the question is, as we think about this scene, as we think about this particular situation here, what does that have to do with you and me? What does that have to do with us? Well, let's unpack that just a little bit. Prayer, our second point is this, prayer is so very important and yet it is hard for us. So here's the thing that we need to take away from this on a practical level is this, Jesus' call to us as his disciples is the same as it was for the disciples then and there. Stay awake, be spiritually vigilant, huge forces are afoot in today's world So what Jesus basically tells us, not only here, but all throughout the rest of the New Testament and jumping back to the Old Testament, is that He still desires us to be awake, spiritually alert, and praying. 
We see prayer emphasized throughout the Old Testament. When we get to the New Testament, Jesus calls us to prayer by first of all exemplifying it. As He shows us this is what prayer is. He teaches us this is how to pray. And then in the early church, we see it as well. We see this in Mark 1, 35, Acts 1, 14, 2, 42, Acts 4, 23 through 31, Acts 6, 4, Acts 13, 1 through 3. I just want to throw out just some, just so you know that it's all out there. It's in the scriptures. We see it again and again and again. Prayer exemplified by the early church in Jesus. But it also, the scriptures also teach us to keep praying. Paul Specifically drives home the imperative of prayer again and again and again. He says in Ephesians 6, 17 through 18, praying in all times in the Spirit. And if you remember, Ephesians 6 is a section where he's talking about spiritual warfare. You know, there's things afoot in the world today, aren't there? Pray at all times in the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18. Pray without ceasing. Romans 12, 12. Be constant in prayer. Colossians 4, 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer. So the command is there. The imperative is there. The necessity is there. The desire from our Lord is there. Yet, is it just me or is praying hard? Is it just me or is praying hard? We must face the truth that Jesus' words still ring true today. The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So why is prayer so hard for us? Let me give you three large categories. Okay, I'm going to give you three large categories with, with various practical Um, implications and outworkings within those categories to help us walk through this and think through this, okay? Now, one of the things that I want to say about this is this is just an overview. And it's important that you understand that because it would be real easy for you to be frustrated that I don't spend all the time that I could because I can actually make a sermon out of each one of these, these areas and there's big, thick books written on all this stuff. So we just want to touch on it and understand it. And what I would do then, what I would ask you to do in a practical outworking of this sermon in terms of an application, is when we get into the study this fall, read through Miller's book carefully. Read through his book and and consider the things that he lays out. There's other books. I'll do a blog pretty soon on other books that you can um, look at in terms of prayer. But know today that we're just touching on these three categories and a few things underneath them. We're in no ways exhausting it. But I want you to begin to think about this. Okay, so why is it so hard for us to pray? First of all, false views of God. False views of God. The main reason we struggle to pray is a false view of God. Just weeks ago, I read a rebuke by someone I know who professes to be a Christian. Uh, They wrote concerning the current, you know, in terms of the current culture that we're in, in terms of social justice, they wrote these words, please do not tell me you're praying for this situation. I'm tired of hearing about your prayers. Do something. Now I understand. 
This person is asking for action. But to insinuate that prayer is not doing something is to have a very wrong view of God. Uh, In reality, let me just put it this way. If we really understood God, and we really understood the power of prayer, that may be all we do. And believe me, it would be enough. The issue here is that we can easily doubt in God's ability to act in this world. This practically works its way out in one of two ways. First, that He is limited in some way from the natural order and the natural laws of this world. In other words, He simply can't do that. His sovereignty is limited. Now we could go on and on about that, but just understand that. We have a wrong view of God that His sovereignty is limited. The second practical aspect of this is is really an overemphasis of his sovereignty to the point of fatalism. Because of his fixed, unchangeable sovereign will, he is limited to act. Now, I want to be honest with you, that's not a biblical view of God. That's an Islamic view of God. In Islam, you will hear the words, Allah wills. Allah wills. But and it and it really is fatalism. But our God, the God of scriptures, is a personal God. I cannot emphasize enough that enough. He is a personal God. How do I know this? What do I mean by that? Well, we have the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three what? Persons? Persons, one God, one triune God, three persons. James 4:2 says this. You do not have because you do not ask. Think about that. If God were not personable, He would just say, well, my sovereign will is over. Don't ask me anything. But no, He says, ask. He desires us to ask. Psalm 50, and the Psalms are filled with this. Over and over abundance filled with this. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. If God didn't want to hear from you, why would He say, call on me in the day of trouble? He would just say, don't worry about it. I've got it all under control. But He says, call on me in the day of trouble. And I will deliver you. Our God is a personal God. Go back to James 5 again. James 5, 16. He says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Walk, this is a great study for you to walk through the Scriptures and see where righteous people pray. And you have to understand righteousness as defined in Scripture. But where righteous people pray. And and how God moves and works. It's, It's pretty incredible. God invites us to pray and to interact with Him. Let me just give you one example. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they teach us that regardless of the outcome of being thrown into that fiery furnace, what do they teach us? That God is good. They tell the the king, look, you could throw us in there. I don't know what God will do. But He's our God. (laughs) He's all-powerful. And God shows His glory and His power by saving them. But what if He didn't? Would He be less God? No. No. That's to misunderstand God. 
So even when the answer is painfully no or not now, and that may even result in great personal and sad loss, God is always willing, always able, and forever good. And He invites us to interact with Him, to pray. Scripture affirms His absolute power and sovereignty. It affirms His will to work out His plans and purposes for His glory. But along with that, Scripture all throughout proclaims that God graciously hears our prayers. And furthermore, that He is willing to act on our behalf he is good. So, let us have a right view of God. We continually work that out as we learn and grow in Scripture. The second uh, category for us is this. False views of our relationship with God. One of the reasons that we don't pray is because we have false views of our relationship with God. With this view... We not only fall into false views of God, but we also have a false understanding about our relationship with God. This practically works itself out in several ways as well. First of all, we tend to grasp um, trust and obedience in, in, a, in an odd way. While prayer is great, and it is a great expression of our trust and dependence on our Father to provide, this trust must also include trusting Him in His Word to us, in His commandments to us, in His kingdom values. What do I mean by that? Well, we see this expressly laid out in the life of Israel. Time and time and time again, they rebel against God's law, and what happens? They fall into discipline. Listen, for example, to Isaiah 1.15. When you spread out your hands, what does God say in 1.15? He says, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. What's going on there? There's not a trust in Him. A trust to obedience. Time and time again, they would do crazy things like, well, let's take the ark with us as we go into battle and, and He'll save us. They trust in Him to a degree, but then they're not living out the life that they should. And so God has the enemy take the ark away. David has to get it back later. We studied that in 1 Samuel. We have to have an understanding of, of a relationship that includes trust and obedience. We need to know his, what He's telling us, and we need to understand that it's for our good. Hebrews 3 reminds us today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. What is the rebellion that He's talking about there? He's talking about when the Israelites were rebelling against God in fear and disobedience, when they would not take the land because they feared those giants in the land, those large people there that would totally crush them, they would not obey Him. And so what happened? They were sent to wander in the desert for 40 years. And so we need to have an understanding, scripturally speaking, that, that we are to have a relationship with God that is one of trust and obedience. And that's one of the key reasons why each week we do a confession of sin. So that we would be able to... Um, uh, 
you know, lay out our sins before the Lord and to trust Him. A second aspect of the false views in our relationship with God is one of subservient relationship to us. In other words, what we're talking about here is, is that God is not a cosmic Santa Claus. He's not a cosmic Santa Claus where he, he will grant every single thing that we desire. God promises that He hears us when we pray, but again, that does not mean that those promises are to grant every request we ask. Jesus said we are to pray first and foremost according to God's will. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so my point in that is it's just like little children, you know, and there's little children in here, but little children can get, you know, like really caught up into things that they might get for Christmas or something like that. And, and they're like, you know, Daddy, I want one of those, um, you know, I want a go-kart, I want a motorcycle, I want a pool for our backyard, I want, a, I want a trampoline, I want, you know, and it's like, does Santa Claus really going to bring all that to you? I don't think so. See, we as adults can get into that way too. We need to realize that, you know, we are under God's will, His desires, and so much of our relationship, even in praying, is to bring us to an understanding where we understand what His will is, what His desires are. And as we're in the Word, we hear Him and how He desires us to live kingdom values. See, they go hand in hand. Word and prayer always go hand in hand. So that's the second issue. God is not a cosmic Santa Claus. We are to pray according to His will. Thirdly, under this, this one of the false views of our relationship with God is, is that we will base our, our uh, faith in our feelings in terms of how we feel. Um, does your relationship ever fall into the, uh, my feelings are the key barometer to my relationship with God situation? Do you ever fall into that? Here's the thing is, is that our, our emotions can go up and down. But listen, our relationship with God is an objective fact. Our feelings will vary widely from hour to hour, minute to minute. In light of whatever is before us, whatever situation is before us. But here's the thing. Our relationship with Him is an objective fact. He loves us. I think He tells Israel here, you know, I'm not going to listen to your prayers he may not hear a person because of that, you know, a sin or something that is going on in our lives, but that doesn't mean he's going to leave us there because in Isaiah, throughout Isaiah, he says, repent and turn back to me. Repent and turn back to me. So he invites us then to get right with him. So if we're in the habit of feeling that we are less of a Christian when and whatever you want to insert there into that section, you know, I'm less of a Christian in this particular situation or in these feelings or whatever the case may be, that may possibly be hindering your prayer life. And so stop relying on your feelings and how you feel and rely on the objective truth of who you are in Christ. Does that make sense? Okay, what is the third spiritual hindrance to us? What, or the third category, and I've already just given it, the third category is this spiritual hindrance. What do I mean by that? 
So we've got here, we've got the idea that we have false views of God. We've got the idea that there's false views of our relationship with God. And now we're talking about spiritual hindrances. So it's moving away from us a little bit and moving out. What does this look like? A real basis of our difficulty with prayer is because of our own sin and because of the great adversary that we have, the devil. Paul, again, lays this out famously in Ephesians 6. 6.12 says this, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So what, what Paul is saying here is behind all that. In reality, if you look behind even these two categories, the first two categories, this third one is always hanging in the shadows. It's always there, just behind. It may come in lies. You know, like for example, you shouldn't be praying right now because you know that you're harboring that frustration against your spouse. You shouldn't be praying. We listen to lies. Or, or you're not good enough. Your friends laughed at you the other day. How would God... God's laughing at you too. You see what I'm saying? The lies that are there behind from the evil one. Um, what about the temptations? We begin to pray and then we think about, you know, if I could just get ahead, maybe I could do this. What about the distractions? You, you get there and you're praying and you're so focused and all of a sudden some thought about someone 10 years ago comes up. And you're like, where did that come from? I haven't, thought, I, don't, I haven't ever thought about that person since that time. Obstacles. Busyness. Drivenness. And one of my favorites is, I'm tired. I'm tired. I love that one. That was my favorite one. I'm tired. In many ways, all of this, you know, is that we struggle with, all of it is connected to the aspect of the evil one and the spiritual forces in this world hating prayer. You know, prayer is a gift, and so the evil one wants to distort it, he wants to make it hard. And that may fall on a different perspective and spectrum for for each of you in terms of prayerlessness. But it's a reality that you have to to grasp. A reality you have to understand. So, from these categories, what do we do? We've got to turn. We've got to repent. We've got to evaluate these. How is my view of God? How is my relationship with God? Um, you know, Lord, I, there are spiritual forces at work in this world, and I just need to be aware of them. When I'm tempted in prayer, when I'm distracted in prayer, it's okay. Just go, okay, fine. Let's go back to prayer. Where our tendency is just to give it up. Don't give it up. Turn away. Repent. Walk to Jesus in prayer. Jesus called us as His disciples, in the same way that He called His disciples on that Thursday evening. Stay awake. Be spiritually vigilant. Huge forces are afoot in today's world. Be awake. Spiritually alert. 
be praying. Don't fall asleep. Now, I know that all this may sound weighty, and it for sure can be, but let me give you some hope. In our passage today, Jesus tells his disciples to watch and pray so that they do not fall into temptation. However, what happens? They fall asleep again a second time. And if you continue on in, in this gospel narrative with, tied in with the other gospels, you'll see that they fall asleep a third time. They just can't stay awake. In the end, the temptation overtook them. And they fled. And Peter denied Jesus. But here's the thing. Jesus kept on praying. Jesus kept on praying and temptation was upon him too as well. But he he didn't falter. And he prayed that that cup may be passed from him. Um, You know, when he prayed that, was the Father listening? Yeah, the Father was listening. Was he always willing to hear his Son and able at a moment's notice to reach in and help him? Yes, he was. Was the Father not always, always good to His Son Jesus? Yes, He was always good. Did Jesus get what He asked for in the garden? Well, yes and no. The cup was not passed from Him. But, God's will was done. He prayed that as well. Not as I will, but as as you will. God's will was done. It was carried out in a most sad and horrific way as Jesus went to the cross. He lovingly submitted to the plan. The eternal plan that He and the Father and the Spirit had had put together. And for that, we can say praise be His name. So He continued to pray there in the garden. And you know what's even more incredible? As the Scripture tells us that He continues to pray for us today in heaven. That He intercedes for us. So in this, when we pray, we know that God draws near to us. We know because of His promise to send a Savior. And what a Savior He is. Our Savior is a praying Savior. And do you know what he says to us? Stay awake. Pray with me. For thy Father's will and his kingdom come. Would you pray with me?